and one and two and two and one and oh shucks I can't dance Welcome to the inaugural episode of Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro. And my name is Troy Whitmore. Today's stories are about Canada's free agent program, the Government of Ontario Public Sector Open Data Working Group, and the Toronto Wellbeing Map. And we begin today's episode with Canada's free agent program the brainchild of Lauren Hunter, who was inspired by a 2012 report by Deloitte called GovCloud. The report called for the restructuring of the government workforce by allowing highly specialized public servants to help government agencies on demand. In 2012, William Eggers, who at the time was with Deloitte, talked about this GovCloud concept in a Canadian government executive article. He describes it as a kind of human cloud that would allow government-wide employees to cross organizational boundaries. Its purpose would be to make specialized skill sets quickly available. I once made the reference that these would be kind of like a collection of Mr. and Mrs. Wolves. You know, as in the Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction? You call them in when things are going down because they fix problems. But before we go any further, we feel it is important to provide the main reason why we think it is so difficult for government to change. Trolls will say that bureaucrats are lazy union employees who are just waiting for their pensions to kick in. While we're sure that may be true in some instances, we're more interested in the much larger issue, which is something open government and open data practitioners call the inertia of government. Think of the government as this plodding elephant marching forward. To change its direction, you can choose to either tackle it head-on or repeatedly nudge it at an angle. Since our current bureaucracy employs hundreds of thousands of people and has been around for a good long while, the odds are that if you choose to tackle it head-on, you'll be trampled over. And that is what the free agent program is all about, nudging at an angle. Not only that, but this selection of public servants would be specifically tasked to challenge the status quo, to make sure that the same old, same old ways of doing things would not be done under their watch. So how did Lauren do this? First, she enlisted the help of Abe Greenspoon, and together they reinvented the recruitment process inside the Canadian Federal Public Service. For example, back when the program was first launched in 2016, Lauren and Abe put together a pre-self-assessment application to help public servants determine whether or not the program was right for them. The form had questions like, Do you consider yourself courageous? Do you speak truth to power? How creative are you? Do you have a good sense of humor? Now, neither of us have ever been public servants, but from our understanding, these are not the questions that are typically asked at a government job interview. But perhaps the very last question in the self-assessment is most telling. It asked if the applicant was ready to accept the fact that this program could be shut down at any time, meaning they'd be out of a job at a moment's notice. Don't forget, back in 2016, this was a brand new program with no secured funding. It was a trailblazing exercise, and it certainly didn't have the gravitas it has now. There was a lot of risk involved, and people who applied not only deserve to know those risks, but the program would have suffered if they brought in people who were risk-averse. 
So, with questions like these, Lauren and Abe were looking for free agents who were not afraid of challenging the status quo and were ready to put their job on the line. So temperament was the first step in choosing these free agents. Second, they had to make sure they weren't recruiting in a bunch of tried-and-true disciples of the 20th century. They seek public servants who possess 21st century skills and knowledge, such as Behavioral economics Crowdsourcing Big data analytics Design thinking And video production And once accepted into the program, free agents would be directed to seek out departments and embed themselves with teams who are looking to find new ways to solve old problems. Since then, the free agent program has grown tremendously. You can find teams in three departments, and the program has more than 75 free agents. Also, the recruitment process takes about six weeks, which, again, from our understanding of federal government, is lightning quick. And this is what open government looks like. Today's second story is about PSOD, the Public Sector Open Data Working Group. It was initially created by the Open Government Team at the Ontario Treasury Board Secretariat to consult with Ontario municipalities about the Open Government License. For those who don't know, the Open Government License was first released by the United Kingdom Government in 2010 and it allowed government agencies to use it with their publications. Here is one of the terms of the license as it is listed on the official UK website. The licensor grants you worldwide, royalty-free, perpetual, non-exclusive license to use the information. Essentially, the open government license is the government equivalent to the Creative Commons license. So getting back on track, after that exercise, People from the province of Ontario saw that they were well positioned to bring together Ontario municipalities to create a kind of informal support group for public servants who are trying to make open gov and open data a reality in their regions. We asked Jose Ianes, one of the founders of PSOD, how he would characterize PSOD when it was first created. He said it was like an analog GitHub when government culture didn't even allow them to use YouTube. And that is hilarious. Government is not designed to help itself. It needs to come up with these roundabout ways like PSOD to do basic things like sharing. So PSOD is wholly dedicated to keeping its members informed by sharing best practices via webinars, teleconferences, emails, carrier pigeon, you name it. And they also tell each other about their own work and ask for help when they need it. But perhaps most importantly, they make sure that no one is reinventing the wheel. For example, we were told that many open data portals have benefited from the sharing of documents and processes within this group. Think about it for a moment. If you're a public servant for the city of Collingwood and you're charged with, or hope to, introduce an open government or open data policy, do you really need to build it from scratch? You know, spend a couple of years consulting and researching and writing? No, you need PSOD. Because whatever Collingwood needs in terms of an open government or open data policy is probably awfully close to what Guelph needs or what Kingston needs. And those policies already exist. So PSOD meets about four to six times a year and will even invite guests who are not public servants or are public servants from outside the province 
to share their insights. And that's what we love about practitioners of OpenGov and Open Data. They work together to challenge or find ways around age-old policies and conventions. And this is what open government looks like. Our last story today is about the Toronto Wellbeing Map. This is an application that was created by Harvey Lowe and the City of Toronto, and its aim is to give people an overview of specific social indicators about their neighborhood. Basically, you choose data points like robberies, healthy food index, or average rent, and it plots it on a map. It even has StatsCan data and other services and facilities from the City of Toronto, like LGBTQ resources and community gardens. Needless to say, it's an awesome tool. Back when it was first launched in 2011, Harvey and his team considered making it open source. But not only did the city not have the technology or know-how to make that happen, he was told he had to integrate the design of the application directly with the corporate IT mapping center because the data points were hard-linked inside the enterprise system. So what does that mean? It's kind of like being told to forcibly intertwine two balls of yarn together. Sure, it'll give you a much larger ball of yarn, but separating them will be one hell of a mess. Which is unfortunate, because places like the City of Quebec, a few Ontario municipalities, and even a First Nations agency in BC have reached out to Harvey, hoping they could buy the application so they could do their own version. But like we were saying earlier, Harvey wasn't hoping to sell this tool. Harvey wanted to make this open source so that those jurisdictions could benefit from this powerful tool without it costing more money. It was a tool created by taxpayer dollars, so why should taxpayer dollars pay for it twice, three times, or ten times? Coincidentally, the Canadian Treasury Board Secretariat did exactly that with the Web Experience Toolkit. They built an open-source template for building Canadian government websites, which is now being used by governments around the world. But that is a story for another time. Now, there are naysayers who don't like tools like the Toronto Wellbeing Map due to the sensitive nature of the data points. You know, bad people doing bad things with them. We even remember on August 18, 2016, Toronto's own chief of police telling the Toronto Police Services Board that very thing during an open data deputation. Um, well, just a couple of things. And first, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very glad that there's a lot of interest and in, in expertise here. So a lot of people have brought a lot to the table for us to consider as we move forward with uh, our plan and, and, and what we plan on doing. I, I also want to you know, be very cognizant of the potential latent material consequences here with data. Um, we spend a tremendous amount of time whenever we submit reports as open and as transparently as possible because we try our best to put things in context, not to hide or mislead anybody, but to have a more fulsome picture. So by putting this open data and the type of data that's out there, I mean, heaven help a person that happens to live at a house that is at a corner intersection to a couple of high rises where a lot of crime is happening on the value of that house when it goes up for sale, or heaven help somebody uh, in a neighborhood that's already stigmatized and the fact that now we're going to stigmatize it even more with all of this data. So I'm hoping that the agencies that see this data use it as a mechanism to help enhance and rebuild those communities. And of course, when it comes to job criteria, someone goes for a job 
then the uh, owner starts looking at data as to where that person lives and uses that as leverage as a deciding factor as to whether or not they're going to hire that person because of where they come from. And if anyone in here is naive enough to not believe that that exists, that exists right now and this will enhance that. That's only one of my concerns, but I certainly, uh, as we move towards transparency and understanding its importance, uh, I'm there to see exactly what we as an agency can do to support that. Now, we give full credit to Chief Saunders for finishing his cautionary tale with a commitment to health, but his preamble is a classic go-to argument for keeping data closed. As a matter of fact, there was a great presentation at the 2014 Ontario Love and Data event by Blair LaBelle. He's the former general manager of technology and innovation at the city of Guelph. What he gave was his own rendition of a David Letterman-like top 10 list of excuses he hears for not releasing data sets. It was great. A couple of our favorites are... If we give it to them, they'll just want more. And... It will be twisted around to make us look bad. These are the kind of excuses open government and open data practitioners hear all the time. So we asked Harvey if, to the best of his knowledge, and the dude is crazy knowledgeable, does he know if the Toronto Wellbeing Map had ever been used for nefarious purposes? This is a direct quote from the email he sent us. We have never had a situation in almost 10 years where the tool was used to conclude inappropriate conclusions. He even went on to say that tools like these are all about creating trust and having informed discussions on key issues in a free and democratic way. Chief Saunders wasn't wrong when he said that open data will shine a light on some aspects of society that probably reinforce a stigma. But is that so bad? The first step in the 12-step program is admitting you have a problem. And when it comes to fixing society, all of us need to know where those problems are. We can't just bury our heads in the sand and hope it will get better by themselves. And with tools like Open Data and the Toronto Wellbeing Map, we could put society on the road to recovery. And this is what open government looks like. This also concludes the inaugural episode of Stories from the Open Gov. Join us next week as we share with you even more stories about how open government and open data practitioners are changing the government you experience every day. In the meantime, leave us a rating or a comment about the episode or podcast and learn more about open government and open data by visiting our website at reopengov.org. Thank you for listening, and let's make it open.